Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. Uh, we have joining us from, give me the city, Paul? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, PA, yeah. and Paul Tallner. And he has a brand new book out called Reinventing Resilience. Let me get it right there. And the subtitle is How Organizations Move Beyond Setback to Grow Through Challenges. I think where you're going to learn just as much as the book is by going to his website, reinventingresilience.com. I highly recommend there. There you're going to find his blog, uh, him talking about the framework of this book, uh, his ability to speak, his bio, and many other things that I think you'll find benefit. So again, it's reinventingresilience.com. And I'm going to let the listeners know a tad bit about you. Paul is the author of this book. He's a principal at Dag Wing Group, a global organization uh, and change consultancy firm hired by Fortune 500 clients to do change the right first time. Um, Tallner began his career mobilizing change at scale in public education sector. He has extensive experience working with executive teams to identify and implement strategic change initiatives. Tallner has also led major cultural integration, transformation, and workplace analysis projects at Partner at Great Place at Work and his own consultancy, High Peaks Group. Again, here is the book, and we're going to be talking with him today about this book. And, you know, Paul, thanks for being on because there's there's such a challenge today in the workplace. I mean, you give some statistics in the book, which are just almost frightening when you think about it. Um, one of them, the you, you said that this professor at Stanford, uh, Jeffney, Jeffrey uh, Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the workplace stress is the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. I just think that's just like crazy when you go to think alarming. about it. Yeah. It's alarming. It, it is. Some of the statistics you give in the book are quite alarming. And so that's a reason for my listeners right now, and you're listening, definitely take a strong listen to this. If you're running an organization, you've got employees uh, and they're having a hard time coping. Uh, Paul has ways to help you through that. So you start the introduction of the book with a story of you hiking in the Grand Canyon. Talk about coping. <laughs> and you find yourself frozen in a panic attack. Uh, believe me, I used to get panic attacks regularly myself. So I know how debilitating they can be. Um, to the point where the guy had to kind of take your hand and help you down and say, Paul, it's going to be all right. You're going you're gonna to get through this. Can you convey the story to listeners and what this has to do with resilience? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm forever indebted to Adam, my guide. Um, so this was 2017, and I was um, a couple of days into a week-long uh, hike in the Grand Canyon. It was part of a leadership development program that I was p- participating in. And at that time, I was still thinking about my brother-in-law who had recently died in a paragliding accident. So I was, my mind was very heavy uh, with thoughts of how unfair and capricious the world was. And um, it was really just kind of to say I was not in a great place would be a bit of an understatement. So, but at the moment of the panic attack, what was going on is I was walking along this very narrow trail and to my left was a 600 foot drop off, like just inches off the trail. And suddenly it struck me that even though I was in this vast, beautiful, gorgeous landscape, that 
it suddenly turned really grim in my head about like, actually, this landscape is terrifying and scary and doesn't care whether I fall into this hole or not. It really doesn't, you know, it was overwhelming to say the least. So what happened, you know, long story short, is that I did not only survive, Adam, my guide, did help me shuffle through the path and make it through, but I actually grew and evolved as a result of that experience. And later I made the connection that many businesses are are like hikers on this path too. They get stuck sometimes and they have to find their way, uh, find a way not only to survive those challenges, but grow and thrive because of them. Yeah, it is. It was a great analogy, actually. The great way to open a book up, especially I've been to the Grand Canyon <laughs> and I've been maybe to that same spot, um, you know, where you're kind of going down the canyon and you're looking off to the side and you're going, man, this is a long way down. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for, for me, I don't have fear of heights, but other things used to be debilitating, as I said to you. And I, and I did have a, a long period about of, of panic attacks. Uh, and I ended up getting biofeedback to actually get that corrected in it. And it worked because I could actually see what my brain waves are doing. But it Amazing. is interesting. People in the workplace, if you were to put them on these machines that actually look at their brain waves, you would see probably the amounts of stress that they're under. And you state that resilience is the courage and confidence to grow through challenges. Mm-hmm. Can you speak with us about the internal and external environments that make up this resilience model that you've developed? Sure. Yeah. So my hypothesis for the book uh, really was that, um, you know, that the great advice we hear for people to build their individual resilience also applies its scale to organizations. So I thought, well, you know, we're getting lots of information out there in the world, especially during COVID about how to build our own individual resilience, but who's talking about resilient organizations. So I wanted to figure that out. Um, and what I discovered was resilience does scale to the team and organization and to even the country level. So what makes people resilient, individual people resilient is their, you know, an awareness of all of the internal and external forces that are impacting them. And, but also the belief that those factors won't stop them. Organizations do the same thing. They take an action based on internal aspects like past experience or resources or talent or intellectual property, things like that. And they also take action based on the external factors that are impacting them, like competition, market dynamics, emerging technology, so forth. But what makes organizations resilient is that they don't automatically look at all those forces as potentially defeating. They actually believe that they can thrive uh, despite those challenges. Yeah, it is interesting how, you know, you have these factors that make this up. And, you know, I said a second ago, you know, can this professor be right that it's the (laughs) fifth leading cause of death? Um, That the workplace stress, you know, again, resilience is the ability to learn how to cope with that. Mm -hmm. But that the status quo within an organization is not, um, it's not sustainable for a healthy right. workplace. You can't just keep going status quo, status quo. Um, what recommendations do you have for upper level management executives and people in the organization that are dealing with this, that are listening to the podcast to change what is called the, I just call it the dis-ease in mm-hmm. the workplace? Because it is really, it's an uneasiness. 
that people have trying to learn how to cope with it because they're given either so much work to do or in too little time to get it done. So when you look at the constraining factors that actually make up this stress, there's external and internal factors. Plus they're having to deal with their own crap at home. That's right. You know, it's not just what's going on at work. It's everything. And the pandemic really exacerbated it because now they were dealing with it at home, at home, at home, because that's where they're working from. No doubt. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, a hundred percent. Right. So I think regardless of, I mean, Jeffrey Pfeffer's statistic is, is very alarming. And, you know, even if it's half true, it's still alarming, right? It's incredible that workplace stress rates among the most, uh, you know, toxic things that we can do to people. Yet we go to work every day. We continue to create businesses and companies that sort of contribute to this workplace stress. And we know that workers are just tired, right? They're tired, they're stressed out. And there are, you know, um, you know, it's so strongly uh, part of our workplace kind of paradigm that even the World Health Organization cites workplace stress as a global epidemic, costing billions of dollars in G- GDP in, in countries yeah. all over the place. So, um, but also I make a point in my book that it's really not a new problem. Workplace stress is something that even in the 1800s people were thinking about, you know, but the the thing to remember is that it can be solved, right? So there's a, a famous quote by an organizational development legend, research, legendary researcher named Ed Deming, uh, who said, organizations are perfectly designed to get the results they're getting right now. So if you want different results, you need to d- a different organizational design. So um, right now, it, so for example, at Daggerwing Group, where I work, you know, we work with executives in this area to help them to be super intentional about how they design their workplaces um, and their workplace cultures so that they uh, that that they're just as intentional about that as they are about their products and services. And, you know, so evaluating your org design and to figure out how it's contributing to workplace stress, uh, which then, of course, cascades down to workplace or, you know, lost revenue, productivity and things like that. That's a critical first step is, is really just understanding where the organization uh, or how the organization is designed to create the kind of stress we want to eliminate. Well, and I think what people forget is our healthcare costs, you know, the cost of actually dealing with stress through psychological visits, medications uh, that people may be taking uh, to learn to cope uh, is extremely expensive. And we've actually seen um, those numbers go up dramatically with all these healthcare providers. And yep. now they're all trying to find ways to help people through apps and other ways so that it could be much more cost effective. But what we find is probably one of the best things that can help for that, as you know, is our own practices and community, being in a community. Because loneliness, I think what the pandemic did really quite and exacerbated it was this world of kind of loneliness. You know, look at us all. We all now can get on a Zoom call and you can be across the other end of the world, but that doesn't mean we're making a connection. And, you know, you worked with Olivia Rowan. She's the mm. publisher of Ski Area Management Magazine, and you cite lots of your clients' stories in here. And I really appreciate that because it kind of shows people what's going on. And you started a discussion about the feelings of overwhelm what people are feeling and you start an online course for that industry, right? Mm-hmm. 
Would you learn from your survey? Because you surveyed 1,100 people on LinkedIn as well. And Mm -hmm. what did you learn by setting up this course for the Ski Area Management Magazine? Yeah, the the course was really important. And it actually emerged out of this industry-wide dialogue that we started as, you know, in the pandemic. So what was happening was, you know how as individuals, we were facing this existential threat, right? So we've got this pandemic, you know, we're working from home, what's really going to happen? You know, there's no future's not guaranteed. That happened at scale in the ski industry. Um, because if you remember, all the shutdowns started happening right at the beginning of the 2020 ski season, right. and all of these operators needed to figure out what to do. And they didn't, and what they, the smart smartest thing they ever did was like not assume they could solve it alone so we brought together all of the industry uh general managers from uh, uh, ski areas around the country more, you know hundreds and hundreds of them but we also opened it up to anyone who worked at those organizations who wanted to listen in and the result was uh, a couple of learnings one is that it is certainly possible to bring an entire industry together to reflect on what needs to happen and how to weather a storm you know so to speak but it's also the other lesson is that when that does happen, powerful things emerge, right? So um, like an online course where everybody committed to developing their own team and, and organizational resilience uh, at scale, the, the, you know, whereas a lot of times uh, organizational culture was sort of an afterthought in that industry. Um it, it kind of flattened out the hierarchy of the industry so that everybody had a seat at the table. Everybody had a voice. Everybody could see their leaders as vulnerable human beings who are thinking about this stuff and worried about this stuff on their behalf. Uh, and I think it was a galvanizing moment for the industry, uh, for, for leaders to really express their confidence in the future, yeah. but also their worries and their fears going forward. So, um, I think many resorts, were able to keep a lot of their seasonal workers as a result of that, of those industry huddles, we called them and the course, et cetera, that they were able to offer something concrete and productive to their workers. And it saved a lot of, um, a lot of money for them to try and rehire new people or, um, you know, uh, maybe close because they couldn't have enough people at the, at the resorts. Yeah. It was costly in many areas. Number one, I'm sure they had to dig into cash reserves to just keep people. Yeah. Uh, secondly, it was costly because I'm sure they had to let a lot of people go, even in spite of it, because of the pandemic and people weren't out skiing. People weren't moving pretty anywhere much at all, really. I mean, look at the airline well, they, industry. They, That'd be another one that you, you could yeah. have gone and done this course in. Well, the funny thing was during the pandemic, people retreated to the mountains. And so a lot of these resorts were overwhelmed with with uh, visitors. And the staff wasn't prepared. They weren't sure what to do. They needed ah, guidance from their okay. leaders. So this so, this was one way to help solve that. So they were still skiing, uh, but just with masks on. <laughs> right, right. Which is, if you've ever tried it, not easy. <laughs> no, I wouldn't think so. It wouldn't be that much fun either. Yeah. So uh, if you were to become more resilient, Paul, uh, and you've identified the qualities that will help us become more resilient, I think this is an important part of the book. Um Tell the listeners what these qualities were, are and how adopting them can really help us. Absolutely. So there are six, and these apply to individuals as well as organizations. And one is believing in one's own ability, which involves figuring out what that is and understanding what your abilities are and believing in them and trusting yourself. Number two is seeing the context 
clearly and unflinchingly. And what that means is really just looking around you and having a, a an accurate and realistic view of what you're seeing, as opposed to just seeing what you want to see or what you wish to be true, uh, really seeing the context for what it truly is. Third is understanding one's own fears and triggers. So anyone who has studied emotional intelligence under, understands this idea that, you know, we have this fight or flight response all the time, or, you know, we kind of exist with this feature <laughs> that we can be triggered by certain things. And just being aware of what those are for us, for us as individuals and for our organizations is really important to strengthen resilience. Fourth is accepting the situation for what it is. And this is probably one of the hardest things any individual can do and what an, or, what an organization can do as well. Because when things are really terrible, we want to avoid it or we want to kind of create a different story. But accepting the situation for what it truly is, is really one of the, one of the most important steps you can take to really becoming more resilient because it, it creates that level of uh, awareness and understanding and just kind of like, you're grounded in, in what's really true. Uh, and then lastly, quickly, just, you know, the ability to choose from a reasonable set of possibilities is a, is a key feature too. Instead of like dreaming up a million things that could never possibly happen as your options, really zeroing in on the things that are actually doable, possible. Maybe they're a stretch. Maybe they're hard. Maybe it is a steep uphill climb, but they are possibilities that you can do. Um, and choosing from those is really important. And then lastly, resources, right? Understanding right. that, especially in times of peak challenge, we tend to forget our resources. We tend to forget what we have at our disposal to use. So the ability to access those resources, whether it's me as an individual or a team or a company is really, really important to sort of see our way through very difficult times. Yeah. And these are good qualities. I mean, what you just pointed out, it's, um, it's, it's an evolution. In other words, it's a way to find and adopt and adapt to what's going on. And, you know, I, I think people that are flexible and can move around and can kind of connect the dots and think in a different way, whether it's emotionally, physically, whatever it is that you've got to do, um, that's how you survive. That's how you get through something. Um, is through that ability to be flexible. And I'm going to mm -hmm. use the term flexible because it is important. And you state that the deficit thinking is limited. And if all we do is close this gap between what's broken and what's normal, um, there's no forward progress. And I would agree mm -hmm. with you. You know, that is just a problem. And I think that has been the status quo, right? And this leads to what's wrong thinking, right? It is definitely deficit thinking and self-limiting thinking mm. that will lead to wrong thinking. Um, and how do we break the cycle um, by referring to what you call this gap closing cycle? It's a model that you've created in the book. And again, I'll hold the book up for the listeners. We're going to have a link to Amazon. Go get a copy of the book. He's also got some very cool QR codes at the end of each chapter that go to a video. And I want to point that out because some people are audio learners, right? That's why podcasts do so well. Some people like to read. Other people like to watch. If you want to watch, there's a video. Uh, you can go watch the videos that he's got at the back of every one of these chapters, along with the recap of the chapter. Um, it calls them chapter summaries, which is very well done, Paul. So, Thank you. Thanks. 
Yeah. So gap closing cycles, uh, a, a really important aspect of resilience. So when we, uh, what they are is, uh, gap closing cycles are what we end up with when we apply conventional definition of resilience, right? So we get knocked down, we get back up and poof, we're resilient, right? Well, that definition doesn't, as you said, take into account this, the fact that growth happens as a result of a challenge. So bouncing back really is just getting back to where you started, not necessarily advancing. So we can break this cycle uh, by building resilience capacity before we need it. So it's kind of too late to build resilience when you're, you know, flat on your face after being knocked down. Uh, so I encourage leaders to use my model to help their teams and organizations practice the essential skills, like being keenly aware of the business environment or the organizational environment that they operate in, um, and also building a strong belief that they do have the capacity to overcome challenges. And I, I think that's a really important point you make, uh, Paul, and that is belief and that you have yes. a strong belief that you can adjust to this, that you can become more resilient. Um, your model is excellent. And I, and I really like the stories that you tell. And I really liked this one because I'm an avid cyclist <laughs> and you, you, there's this great analogy and you speak about the Dutch headwinds cycling championship race. <laughs> I had no idea what the hell it was. Um, but where riders are facing headwinds, which is resilience. I mean, it actually, it's resistance, uh, not resilience. I mean, they're being resisted because I've ridden many times into headwinds mm-hmm. and it slows you down immensely. Mm-hmm. And they're all on these single speed bikes. So for all of you guys who have never ridden a single speed bike, <laughs> um, I'd like for you to get on a single speed bike in a windstorm <laughs> and see how you do, because that's basically almost what he's saying. You tell the story and how this relates becoming more resilient because it's, sure. it's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So the Dutch headwind cycling championships are really a unique thing. Uh, it happens, uh, at the north, uh, nor- northern border of Holland, uh, along the North Sea. There's a storm barrier that was uh, created to keep the country from flooding. And this race only happens when there's a severe storm predicted. So they don't know when it's going to happen or where, you know, the date, but, but they have to, they, they send out the call to all the interested cyclists. They have a, a rack all the of crazy people, all the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, all the people. So they have this rack of city commuter bikes, right? These single speed, yeah. one break city bikes that Dutch people typically use in the, in town to, to commute. And then they have a time trial. Basically, they start the clock. You, you go as fast as you can. It's about eight miles and you, you know, the fastest time across this storm barrier wins. Now, this only, this race only happens when the headwinds are 40 miles an hour or greater. <laughs> and it's just like, and people actually sign up for this on purpose and do it yeah, in te- like yeah. for real. Like they want to do it. I said, so, they, I think they limit it to 60 is what you said in the book. It's I not- think so. Well, c- otherwise it would take all day. Right. So, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it'd be amazing. So uh, it is a, it's a fascinating thing and an amazing metaphor for, uh, for resilience because, um, it, and, and the way this, I, the way I see this race res, uh, being relate, related to resilience is that, you know, forward momentum on a bike when it's calm outside means you have wind resistance, right? So you're always right. going to have, you know, wind in your face. And that's actually a good thing because it signals that you're moving forwards, right? So we should actually, you know, 
appreciate the fact that we have a little bit of wind in our face when it does happen. So, and, and honestly, what, what happens in a lot of organizations is we complain about headwinds a lot, you know, we, and we don't recognize that we've earned the headwinds by actually moving forward. Secondly is sometimes the wind gets really, really strong, (laughs) you know, and we, and we have to just admit that we cannot control the wind, uh, but we have to keep going anyway. So how do you do that? So in cycling, what you can do, the thing you can do is keep traveling. You draft. Yeah. And, and if, draft. If there's someone to draft off if there, of, I yeah, doubt if, you're if lucky there's enough. many people uh, here to draft And tuck off. down into a more aerodynamic position. Right, right? So right. those are the things you can do. And that's the right. reality of the situation that I talk about all the time. It's like you are on the bike. And in your, when you're in an organization, you are actually on the bike. So the things you can actually do are to tuck down. Like, you know, hopping into a car not is not part of the race. So that's not an option. Um, and then the third thing is um, – it's really not about just simply getting through it. It's really about what you learn about yourself along the way, right. you know, uh, cause everybody, you know, quote unquote, finishes a race. It doesn't matter who finishes first, but everybody talks about the fact that they've done it. Uh, and it's important that, that we celebrate and focus on the learning that we have as a result of these challenges and not just the outcomes. And I think that's a lesson for individuals and companies along the way. Well, if you ever watch any of those time trials, you know, I guess the whole, the old story of the tortoise and the hare might actually uh, pop up because, <laughs> you know, they, if you're in a uh, peloton and you see how they strategically move around, you get the idea, you understand that, hey, we're going to put our strong guys out last and they're going to ride and save their energy, right? And it's all mm-hmm. about energy management. Mm-hmm. And resilience is about energy management because if you burn yourself out too quick, you're never going to finish that race. Yeah. And so that isn't a very important factor. And you mentioned resilience can feel lonely, but that we're all experiencing the challenge and struggles that it brings. You've studied resilience at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this book is about. And you speak about some of the common observations that you've made about organizations. And what would you tell the listeners about how you, your studies, um, how an organization can basically get through this and what are some of your common observations? Mm, Yeah. Well, first of all, yes, loneliness is definitely a huge problem, you know, for remote workers, for the elderly, for lots of people in our society, leaders, of course, experience loneliness at work. Uh, but it goes back to design, right? So we've designed systems that create loneliness and the stress that comes along with it. Um, and I think resilient organizations that uh, resilient organizations create really good cultures where people feel a strong sense of belonging, even if they're not physically together every day, right? So they do this by having clearly defined ways of working, a strategy that everybody can contribute to, uh, and well-articulated values, and also very clear accountabilities. These are these are some very easy things, not easy, but these are very simple things to uh, that organizations can work on. And we've been doing a lot of this work at Daggerwing as a result of um, all of this new ways of work that we're experiencing. So many of our clients are really thoughtful about working, about um, creating a great workplace, even though so much of what they're doing is untested at the moment and somewhat experimental. So the best and most resilient organizations from what I've observed is the ones that have a mindset where change is done with people and not to people. That is the we instead of the me, me or the I. 
And I think in all of this work, you have to be looking at the we and who you're serving, which is the greater good for the organization. You know, you've got this resilience model in the book and anybody wants to go, go look at it, but you also can go to his website. You mentioned that the resilience model, there's two forces joined together, staunch Mm -hmm. realism and collective efficacy. efficacy. I got to say that right. (laughs) Are at the center of organizational resilience. Can you speak with us about the two forces, these two forces in particular, because they're pretty much what make up a lot of the model, um, are the engine of resilience and outputs of courage, because those are the two outputs. It's like, okay, I'm going to have courage and confidence, right? Um, Speak with our listeners, because those two elements of your model are really the key core points. They are. Yeah. They, they sort of form the, the, where the energy comes from, right? So staunch realism is the ability to be attuned to one's environment as it really is. And we talked a little bit about this already, uh, but not a version of the environment that you wish it to be. Right. And I think this, um, this happens at scale. Like a lot of leadership teams, you know, kind of can convince themselves of a different truth as opposed to the real, really what's going on sometimes. Um, and it takes a lot of work for an organization to be really, really honest with itself about how it sees the forces that are acting on it, you know, um, lots of debate, lots of discussion, uh, and it's not always easy, but it's critical if an organization wants to be prepared for that next gust of headwind. Um, similarly, organizations have to uh, need or they they have to have an inherent belief that no matter what happens, they have the ability to make it through. Um, make it through the other side of a challenge. This isn't always easy either, obviously. So I tell a number of stories in my book about companies that really did fail because they couldn't overcome this com- these competitive pressures. They sort of relented to this belief that they couldn't make it, uh, like Blockbuster, Kodak, and many others. You know, they just decided at some point collectively, maybe not, maybe they didn't have a vote or say it out loud, but at some point they believed that they couldn't make it. Uh, so they did not have that self-belief that resilient organizations do have. But so when organizations do build uh, strong collective efficacy and staunch realism, as you, as you pointed out, the outputs are courage and confidence. So with those outputs, organizations have, they've reinvented resilience, actually, instead of it being something that they only think about when things go bad, they are thinking about it as a, a, a source of competitive advantage for the organization. Yeah, it's so important that you, I mean, for all my listeners, go get the book, right? Here it is, easy to get on Amazon and check out the model. Uh, go to the website, check out the model there as well. Check out what he's speaking about because um, at the core, it is courage and confidence, right? And when people lose that courage and confidence, that's basically like you said, well, you know, you mentioned some of the companies that, that folded blockbuster, you know, Polaroid, people like that. Um, and it's so important to know what the forces are that actually create that. Right. Um, and you know, the wisdom advice in the book is wonderful and it's going to help any organization interested in changing what I'm going to call the organization itself or the culture by helping to change the individuals in the organization to become more resilient. It always starts with the individuals, Paul. Um, And anybody working on culture understands that. 
What three takeaways would you like to leave the listeners with that could help them thrive more during challenging times? Because they're all faced with challenging times, no matter what. It's going to happen. Uh, it may not be right now, but, um, you know, I'm trying to remember the author, but when you, when you, she was on the show here, her book was Seeing Around the Corners, mm. right? And you have to kind of be forecasting, looking for events that potentially could sideswipe you, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you need to be preparing the organization, the individuals in the organization, and the operations of the organization to meet those potential, um, let's just call them attacks, threats that mm -hmm. could come your way. Yep. And so what advice would you give people who uh, maybe aren't, you know, experiencing it right now, but could experience it to become more resilient? Yeah, I, I would say you will. Um, eventually all organizations will experience some, some form of setback that they're not necessarily, uh, anticipating, you know, it's easier, it's much easier to kind of prepare for things you are pretty sure are going to happen, but no one, no one predicted a pandemic. Right. So I right, think right. the, uh, there's, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, ensuring organizations can build up their resilience for that next gust of headwind, as I call it, that they can't right. predict. But so in terms of takeaways, I think you know, a couple things, um, uh, come to mind, you know, my, my surname is Talner. And, um, I recently found actually through the, doing this book, found out that it's an old time occupation in Austria. <laughs> um, a Talner was a guide that actually helped people navigate from one valley over a mountain pass into the next fertile valley. Mm. Uh, and I was like, well, that's ironic. That's what I do for a living. Um, but what I would love everybody to do, and I think this is the, you know, my guidance advice for everyone is to, um, for everybody listening is to be a Talner yourself, right? So be a guide that helps other people, your teams, your organizations, um, really, uh, learn whatever lessons they need to learn in those valleys, in those dark moments, in those challenging times, so that they can climb over that mountain pass into the next fertile valley. Uh, that would be, so my wish for everyone is that you become a Talner yourself. Um, but then also I'd love to invite listeners to kind of join me as I collect uh, stories of organizational resilience. The book is just the starting point. I'd love to continue to create a conversation around what works in organization, what's, what makes them and keeps them resilient. Um, and also field test some solutions with, with folks, you know, just to see if there's a group of folks who wanted to, wants to kick the tires on a few ideas that I have to really uh, spark thinking in terms of in, in, in organization. So at reinventingresilience.com, if people sign up for the newsletter, I'll certainly reach back out um, and uh, invite people to contribute their stories and also maybe even test some of these learning materials that I'm, that I'm creating for, for free, just to see if we can get them uh, ready for other organizations that need the help. It's a great uh, opportunity for all my listeners. So please uh, take Paul up on that. And, you know, I did a interview not that long ago um, uh, about experiential intelligence. You know, we talk about emotional intelligence a lot, but the reality when these things face you, how you navigate through them, as Paul was just saying, is by learning from the experience. So it's really, you know, experiential intelligence that you're forming and creating and continuing to do that. And you find the ones that survive 
are the ones that record and document that experiential intelligence and then share it. Mm-hmm. And, and remember it when, and remember it when there's a peak challenge, right? So like yeah. accessing it. Right. And, and, and accessing it both internally uh, from intelligence, but a lot of times people need to be reminded. They need to find sure. a way to actually access this data. And I would say that, you know, Paul has done a wonderful job of giving you tools, right? You've got all these videos that people can watch. You've got this ability to take the book on, to look at the model. I'd encourage you to go sign up for his newsletter. Do all of those things. Um, even now when you might not be threatened by too much uh, and you're, you're saying, hey, look, our workplace stress, there isn't any. Um, it always helps to have some arsenal of, of what I'm going to call uh, tools to make it available to you. And your model just in of itself, if somebody just studies the model, is a great tool. So thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of your wisdom. And again, for my listeners, I'll hold this book up one last time. Uh, Reinventing Resilience. Paul Tallner is who you want to go. We're going to put a link to Amazon and you're going to go to reinventingresilience.com and do use the QR codes in the back of the book because they are great little interviews and snippets. Um, they run about two minutes, some of them, some of them a little less. They're all different, but it's a great way for you to learn from the book as well. Paul, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing your experiences. We appreciate having you. Thanks so much, Greg. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.